Let us pray. Lord, we come before you as your bride. We come before you as your people who have had a long week. And now we come to church to praise you, to honor you, to hear your word. Let us be challenged today. Let us be convicted today. But also let us be uplifted today in our spirit. For the people who have come with baggage, Lord, let them leave it here. And Lord Jesus, may your saints encourage one another. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. May your people not hear me or see me, but hear and see you. Holy Spirit, move through me. For I am simply just the means. May my words be clear and may my thoughts be yours, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So it's been said that in life there are many questions and there are many answers. If you were to ask yourself, what are some of the most difficult slash profound questions that you've ever been asked in life? The top question that many ask is, well, why is there something rather than nothing? Meaning, why is there all this stuff in the universe? And why is it governed by such precise laws? How did the universe, creation, even us come into existence? In his book, A Universe from Nothing, Lawrence Krauss attempts to answer that question. He said, the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms on your left hand probably came from a different star that's in your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. Conclusion? You are all stardust. You could have been here if stars hadn't exploded because elements, the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen, the iron, all the things that matter for evolution were created at the beginning of time. They were created by, they were created in a nuclear furnaces of stars and the only way they could have gotten into your body is if those stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so you can be here today. So basically the whole universe and us are here because stars were ever so kind to explode. So we are not image bearers of God. Or stardust. Another question is, well, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? There's been a myriad of different answers to that question. For some, it's, well, to find what makes me happy. And when I find what makes me happy, then I will know what my purpose in life is. Parents teach their children. Their purpose in life is to go to college and get married and have kids and Get a nice house and a good career. Robert F. Kennedy said, The purpose of life is to contribute in some ways to make things better. That's the general consensus also of 
what the purpose of life is. It's just do good things. Make society a better place to live in. Buddha didn't give much help to this question, but he tried to answer it. He said, your purpose in life is to find your purpose and give it your whole heart and soul to it. And of course, everyone's favorite, T.D. Jakes. He said, if you can't find your purpose, figure out your passion, for your passion will lead you right to your purpose. Hmm. Here we have a so-called minister of the gospel says nothing about the glory of God. says nothing about following Christ. says nothing about denying yourself, taking up your cross. says nothing about being an image bearer of God and displaying his glory throughout the nations. But it's, now once you go find your passion. <clears throat> Many ask the question, is there life after death? It's the fourth question we ask when we go to the marketplace. Do you believe in heaven or hell? And if you believe in heaven or hell, where do you think you're going? And if you're going to heaven, on what basis are you going to heaven? And if you're going to hell, on what basis are you going to hell? New reports are coming out now that German scientists are trying to prove that there is no life after death. That we just merely seek to exist. It's another one of their cases to take God out of the picture so they can live as sinful as they want. All those questions are great questions to ask oneself. Those are questions that need to be asked. But I think a more deeper, profound, important question is, who is Jesus? It's a question I asked myself when I was 21 years of age, when I was studying different religions, even flirting a little bit with atheism. It's a question that's been debated and discussed ever since Jesus was here on earth. Who is Jesus? Is this man? To Muslims, Jesus was just another prophet, a messenger from God who taught great things, although he wasn't divine and he didn't die on a cross. In Mormonism, Jesus is a creation, the product of relations between God and a goddess wife who used to be people from another world. Jesus is the literal spirit brother of the devil and you and I. Mormons have a different view of who Jesus is. As do Jehovah's Witnesses have a different view of who Jesus is. In the secular world that we live in, Jesus is just a great moralist. Great teacher who taught many great things. A man who taught that we should love our neighbor, do good unto others, love our enemies, And treat others the way you would want to be treated. Even atheists would say that Jesus was a great moral teacher and we should follow his example, but he shouldn't be considered God. That's That's too far of a stretch. Gandhi said Jesus was a man who was completely innocent. Offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies. And became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Martin Luther King said, Jesus was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Both of these men, who the world hold in such high regards, they modeled much of their life and teachings from Jesus. Yet, neither one of them, in my opinion, were Christians. Definitely God, he wasn't. 
And neither one of them claimed that Jesus was God. People often have this view of Jesus, which is the common view of Jesus today, is they love Jesus, but they just hate God. Has anyone ever heard that before? I've heard that many times. Because they think that the God on the left side of the Bible is different than the God on the right side of the Bible. And the God on the right side of the Bible is apologizing for everything that the God on the left side of the Bible did. In our churches today, Jesus is the cool God who loves everyone in this world so much. I mean, he died for everyone, right? He's a light skin, brown eyes, light brown hair, who looks like he can be a Jewish Abercrombian fish model. Even shirts have been made saying, Jesus is my homeboy. You can often hear people say or refer to Jesus as sweet baby Jesus. The disrespect is all around us this day. And Judah Smith, who is the pastor of the celebrities, pastors Justin Bieber, for you Justin Bieber fans, pastors Selena Gomez, for you Selena Gomez fans, he wrote a book titled... Jesus is. Don't worry about Arturo. And in this book, he attempts to reveal the character of who Jesus is. So let me give you some of the chapter titles. Chapter one. The first chapter of who Jesus is, is Jesus is your friend. Chapter two. Jesus is grace. Chapter three, Jesus is the point. Chapter four, chapter four seems like a deep theological one. He might have been reading Calvin here. Because chapter four is, Jesus is happy. In chapter five, Jesus is alive. I listened to a sermon by a pastor here in town who titled the message or the series, Jesus or Who is Jesus? And the very first message he gave to his large congregation was, Jesus is my best friend. This is what's being preached in the majority of large churches in America today. The Jesus of the Bible is now being replaced with the Jesus who you are most comfortable following. What we see now is a God who is all about me, and he has to be all about me. He has to keep me healthy. He has to support me. He has to dot, dot, dot. We hear this in our music also. Everyone's favorite contemporary church song, How He Loves Me, starts with the words, Jesus is jealous for me. Jesus in our churches today is what Pastor Vody Bauckham calls the sissified Jesus. This morning, however, We want the real truth of who Jesus is. Not the Jesus who's portrayed in movies like Son of God. You know, the pretty boy Jesus who never claims to be divine. Or the Jesus that's portrayed in the History Channel specials or PBS specials. Or the Jesus that's simply our best friend, our homeboy, or our road dog. But the Jesus that was portrayed by an eyewitness. From the very pen of one who was there and who saw it all. He loved him. 
This morning we'll be in the position of the crowds who wanted to find out who this man from Galilee was, who this man Jesus has come from. And we will allow Jesus to answer those questions. Not our own human invention. And I pray by the end of the sermon, you will have a much clearer picture of who this God that we serve is and where he has come from. Now, to refresh your memory, we are now at the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember? It's a week-long celebration. Every Jewish male was required to be there. Jesus' brothers, acting like Jesus' campaign managers, our image consultants, think that Jesus should go to this feast and show himself. Go to Jerusalem and do your miracles on a, on a much larger and grander scale. They wanted their brother to gain a certain status to where the people will crown Jesus king, and in return they will receive the benefits of that. However, Jesus knows what's awaiting him at this feast. Hatred, questions, confusion, division, hostility was the air that, would, that was awaiting this feast. Jesus tells his brothers to go ahead of him because it just wasn't his time yet. The brothers go off to this feast and we saw the Jews were expecting Jesus' arrival, asking, where is this man at? About middle of the week, at the most unexpected time, Jesus shows up and the first thing he begins to do is the one thing people hate about him. Teaches. The crowds marvel at Jesus' words, saying, how does this man have such learning if he's never studied? Jesus talks about how his teaching is not his own. And if you were doing God's will, you would have known where his teaching is from. Then he sets his eyes on the Pharisees, rebukes their legalism, tells them that they don't keep the law, calling out their hypocrisy. And he gave them advice that they should judge with the right judgment. So this morning I have two headings for us to consider. Number one is the Messiah's deity. And number two is the Messiah's departure. Let's now stand for the reading of the word. John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36. The word of God reads, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I, am, for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not come. Yet many of the people believed in him, saying, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer. And then where I'm going, and I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? 
Does he intend to go amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean when he says, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. You may be seated. So after Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, gives them advice that they should judge with the right judgment. He now sets his eyes on the citizens of Jerusalem. Verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now what we have in John chapter 7, and if you've been here for this John chapter 7 series, then you would see that there are three different people groups. The first is the Jews, who were the Pharisees. Those were the ones that wanted to kill Jesus. Those were the ones that hated Jesus. The second group that we see are the people who have come from different parts of the land to this feast, to Jerusalem. We can call them the pilgrims. These are the crowds that were marveling at Jesus' words. And then the third group we have is the Jews that lived in Jerusalem. They were citizens of Jerusalem. And these are the people who Christ or who John is speaking to or speaking about in verse 25 when he says the people of Jerusalem. So now Jesus is addressing a different people group here. And there must have been some talk in the area about Jesus since his last visit in Jerusalem. Remember in John chapter five, what did he do? He healed a man on the Sabbath. That was his last visit. That was about a year ago. There must have been some type of talk. There must have been. Some type of buzz in the area. Because the people of Jerusalem say, is it not this the man whom they seek to kill? Which indicates there must have been something that was said about Jesus. People must have known that the Pharisees wanted Jesus to die. And the people knew that there was a plot that was being built up to murder this man. They, like everyone else, marveled at Jesus. But not at his words, so to speak, but at the way he said them and and who he was addressing his words to. They were stunned. We read in verse 26. And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. The people were shocked. Remember in verse 12, the people didn't even want to say a word about Jesus. Why? Because for fear of the Jews. For fear that the Jews were going to take them and and capture them and question them. Are you associated with this man? Do you know this man? He was a topic of whispers. But here we have Jesus speaking openly about himself. The very thing that the crowds were scared to do. So they marveled at this. I'm sure they heard Jesus tell the Pharisees that they don't keep the law. I'm sure they overheard Jesus telling the Pharisees off. The Jews were amazed by that. Then this leads them to a conclusion that, is this the one who we've been waiting for then? Could this be the Messiah? You see, let's go to verse 26. Can it be that authorities really know that this is the Christ? Their thinking is, well, here we have this man who we are scared to openly say things about in front of the Pharisees. But here he is speaking openly about himself to the Pharisees. And better yet, 
He's telling them off. He's getting away with murder here. But why aren't they stopping him? He just rebuked their legalism. He just rebuked the most powerful men in Jerusalem. Could it be that Jesus is the one who's to come? Could it be that the Pharisees know that this is the Messiah? Could it be that the Pharisees are keeping something from us? Maybe. You see, right now they're very intrigued. They're, they're now marveling. They might be warming up to Jesus. This could be the one, guys. This could be the one that was promised long ago. But as we come to verse 27 to 31, the crowds do a back and forth about who Jesus is. Is he the Messiah or is he just a pretender? So here they snap out of it. But we know where this man comes from. And when, he, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So you see how they were first were just like, okay, maybe this is the one. And then they snap out of it. But wait a minute. No, this can't be the one because we know where he comes from. That's right. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from. Wow. The Jewish people knew that the Messiah was going to come. A person who would come and militarily take down Rome and restore Israel and accomplish Israel's redemption. However, from what we learned last week, the Jews' view of who the Messiah was supposed to be came from their tradition. The people of Israel said, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. The people thought that the Messiah was just going to pop up. That his origins would be unknown. A view that was largely taught in their day. The Jewish citizens supposedly thought that they knew where Jesus was from. We know this man. This is Joseph's boy. You know Joseph, the carpenter. And, and this is Mary's boy. And we know his brothers. This can't be Jesus. This can't be the one. We know the town that he's from. He's from Nazareth. Like what Nathaniel said. Nazareth? Can anything good come out from there? It's like being born in Lamont. Cut that out. Cut this out. Cut that out. But we know where this man comes from. The constant rejection of Jesus as the Messiah is a pattern that we see all throughout the book of John. Remember in John 4, but the woman of the well said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. So whatever you say about living water and, and, and whatever you're saying about my failed marriages and the person who I'm sleeping with now, it doesn't really matter because when the Messiah comes, it's going to be okay because he's going to tell us all things. <laughs> Not knowing that the Messiah was standing right, right in front of her, telling her everything about herself. I'm reminding of the, reminded of the words in John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He goes back to where he was born. He preaches a sermon. What do they want to do? They want to throw him off the cliff. Imagine living the life Jesus lived. And here's a clear case of the people being slow, so blinded by their tradition. This can't be the Messiah. 
We know where this man is from. They claim to know where Jesus is from, and they claim to know who Jesus is, but in reality, they, very, they knew very little of him. For one, they didn't know his true origins. Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. Thus fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you were small among the clans, clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. They didn't know that Jesus was born of a virgin. Thus fulfilling another prophecy, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. They didn't know these things. Verse, but the people were unaware of that. They also might have thought that, well, this can't be the Messiah because he doesn't have that look. He doesn't have that strong, masculine look that, that we look for. But he doesn't have that look of a conqueror, someone that was going to redeem us and take down Rome with a sword. This is very common in our world today also. Jesus is the pretty boy Jesus. He's the beautiful Jesus. You see it in pictures. The blue, the, the blue eyes, the brown eyes, the long brown hair. Because a lot of times we connect beauty with power. And we connect righteousness with good looking. Isaiah 53 two says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The Messiah was supposed to bring Israel together, but here we have Jesus dividing the people amongst each other. The Messiah was supposed to bring peace amongst the Jewish people and wage war against our enemies, but but here he is, and, and he's saying that he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. So... Jesus responds to the Jewish citizens, claiming that they knew where he is from. Verse 28, you know me and you know where I am come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and and him you do not know, but I know him. For I have come from him and he sent me. Beginning of verse 28, it says, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. I like how the New King, King James Version puts it. It says, then Jesus cried out. Meaning he screamed it out. He said loudly. He raised his voice. You know me? And you know where I come from? But I have not come on my own accord. Now when Jesus says, you know me, and you know where I come from? He's using ironic language here and a tad bit of sarcasm. You think you know me? You think you know where I'm from? We use this language all the time. He's appealing to the difference between the appearance of things and what's actual reality. They knew Jesus in an earthly sense. 
But like many in this world today, they don't know Jesus in a spiritual sense. You might be here now. You know some things about Jesus, but you are far from knowing who Jesus really, really is. Here we have the fourth rebuke. The reason why they didn't know him is because they didn't know God. Remember in the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus rebukes his brothers. Tells them that they are of the world. That the world cannot hate them. But it hates me. In the middle of the verses, it was the various people groups that have come. The pilgrims and the Pharisees. That's the second rebuke. Now he tells the citizens of Jerusalem. The ones who probably thought that they were more privileged than everyone else in the world because they're God's people. He tells them, you don't know God. This is very similar to what he says to the crowds in verses 16 through 18. That if they knew the one who sent him, then they would have known where Jesus' teaching has come from. Mm -hmm. And likewise here he says, you don't know me because you don't know the one who sent me. The same language is being applied all throughout this chapter. However, I know him. For I am from him. And he sent me. Brothers and sisters, this is who Jesus is. God in the flesh. He's not what Judah Smith said. And he's not what that pastor downtown said. Jesus God. Amen. Before Jesus was born, Jesus existed with the Father. As John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God, saints. The eternal Son of God. Amen. And unlike us, Jesus existed long ago. Long before he was born, Jesus was already there. As John the Baptist said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Like Paul says in Colossians, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. All things were made by him and through him. Where Jesus is from, heaven pointed to who Jesus is. God. This is a very different message that's being preached in large churches today, however. Jesus nowadays is what our human mind wants him to be. So that means now you are following a Jesus of your own likeness and of your own image. Which ultimately results, and I learned this from my brother, And worshiping yourself instead of worshiping the real Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. Let us ask ourselves this question this morning. Who is Jesus? It's a question both historical and spiritual. As we see, Jesus preached a different message about himself. He wasn't the pale blonde Embodiment of Christian virtues, as Pastor Mark Dever would say. Nor was he the Jesus who just wants you to call on him when things are going bad, 
But when things are going all fine and dandy, you kick them to the side. Nor the Jesus that the culture paints him out to be. Just a great teacher, but he's not worthy of following. He's not the only way. There's Muhammad, there's Buddha. Jesus is far greater than that. Jesus is a member of the Godhead. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. Jesus is not your best friend. Jesus is not your lover. He's none of those things. Jesus is God. So let's start treating him like he is God. This question of who is Jesus is so pivotal because it connects to how we see the world, Mm -hmm. how we live our lives, how we worship, Mm -hmm. how we handle circumstances, and how we handle the good times. How we raise our children, how we speak to others. Who others see us proclaiming? Who others see as a different image bearer. That, that, there's something different in that person. Amen. I don't know what it is, but, but there's something different. It might be that Jesus that he's serving. Right. And there you go. The door is now open. Yeah. <clears throat> Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him. But get this. But no one laid a hand on him. <laughs> Because his hour had not come. I have no idea how that happens. My only explanation is he was on a divine timetable. That's simply it. God knew when this man was going to the cross. And Jesus knew the hour in which he would lay down his life. It simply wasn't his his hour to go. Verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him saying... When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The question implies a negative response. No. For no one can do these miracles. I mean, he just fed over 20,000 people. He's casting out demons. He's doing some crazy stuff. Who else can do these things? The crowd's might have been starting to warm up to accepting Jesus. However, this could have been just superficial faith. Why do I say that? Because they only believed because the signs that they were witnessing. The words of Jesus didn't draw them to this conclusion. The miracles did. This is what we see today also in churches. This is actually the great evangelistic tool to bring people to your altar. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, I know a God. And if you believe in him, there's a lot of benefits to come. Or maybe I have to see the miracles first. Or maybe I have to see changes in my life first. Then I'll give my life to Christ. Very similar. That might have happened to you. That's probably why you have come. 
That's probably how you came to the knowledge of Christ. But we know that now that is superficial in some ways. Because then you are always looking for a benefit to keep you. You're always looking for a high to keep your blood steady, to keep your mind right. Because if this Jesus doesn't do what I heard that preacher say he would do, I can't follow him. So they were drawn by the miracles, but not the words. Jesus came to preach. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom is now here. He didn't come to simply cast out demons. And let that be a reminder to you. He does not. He did not choose you just to make you healthy or to make you wealthy. But he chose you to follow him, to lay down your life as he did for you. Let us strive this morning to not simply admire Jesus, but adore him and to love him and to follow him. This is why our view of Jesus matters. Let's now look at the, the Messiah's departure. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, history tells us that the Pharisees and the chief priests didn't have the best relationship with each other. Most of the chief priests were the political and religious opponents of the Pharisees. I say that point because they both came together to come get to get the, to get that man. They both came together in a plot to kill Jesus. To put aside their differences and they said, "Hey, you don't like this man? Good. I don't like him either. Let's get him." So the Pharisees and re- remember this point. The Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus because this is going to be very crucial to next week's sermon. Okay, they went off. They sent some uh, officers to arrest him, to question him, to bring him in, to do what they got to do. Verse 33 and 34, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me for where I am. You cannot come. Jesus is doing a couple things here. First, again, he's appealing to his divine heavenly origin, saying he's going back to the place where he came from. And where he's going, you cannot come. The second thing he's doing is he's revealing to them a day in which they will seek him. A day when they will want Jesus, but they will be unable to find Jesus. This is of such relevance for us today. A quick story as a child growing up and even going into my teenage years. I would often say and think that when I am much older, like literally dying, (laughs) then I will follow Christ. Then I will start attending church, um, thinking that church would 
save me. And then I will be totally sold out for God. I will live for Christ. I will be what we used to call these people a Jesus freak. (laughs) Jesus makes it clear, however, that there will come a time when you will seek for the truth. But the truth will nowhere to be found. People nowadays believe like I did as a child. Or I can know that there is a God. I can have a knowledge or some knowledge of who Jesus is. Yet, while knowing all those things participate in worldly activities. Young people, if you're listening, please, please take into account what I'm saying this morning. When I am much older, then I will give my life to God. I got got four reasons why that might be your first class ticket to hell. Number one, you're using God. You're pimping God's grace. You're pimping God's mercy. You think that you have outsmarted everyone, including God. I can do whatever I want, and then at my final dying moments, then I can be a Christian. Then I can turn to Christ. But in reality, you don't want God. Which leads to the second reason, you just don't want to go to hell. In fact, if you had it your way, you don't want heaven either. Or maybe, maybe you do want heaven. But it better have some fun there. There better be, they, they better be playing on a big screen TV, the Niner Angel, Angels versus the Niner Raiders. The Angel Niners versus the Angel Raiders. <laughs> Cut that out too, Arturo. You got a lot of work to do today. And I'll better be there. Or at least McDonald's. Or at least hometown. Hopefully heaven is what the Mormons say it is because hopefully we can have relations there. There's kids in here. I need my own mansion. I need my own I need my own car. And it better be on dubs. All these passing material things are what make up what heaven was for you, young Isaiah. But heaven is not a place where material stuff will be enjoyed. But heaven is a place where we will enjoy Christ. Sam Sam Storms put it so beautifully. The essence of heaven is the vision or the beholding of God the eternal expansion of our knowledge of God and the ever-increasing joy, love, and delight in that experience in God and in one another. This is heaven. This is where Christ is going. Number three, you don't want that, though. You don't want to know about Jesus. And on a side note, now, this might not be a side note. If you're not worshiping now, if you're not reading the Bible now, and if you have no desire of Christ now, just go to hell. 
Because all of these things that we are practicing on earth will be things that we will do in heaven. So you better start now. But the third issue, you think Jesus, or you think coming to Jesus, I should say, is far easier than it sounds. People don't wake up one morning and repent of their sins, acknowledge that they have sinned against the Holy God, acknowledge that there is nothing that they can do to save themselves, thereby they must put all of their faith in Jesus, the one who fulfilled everything on their behalf for his people. And now they want to commit themselves to Christ, putting to death the old man, abandoning their sin, and live a life that's worthy of the calling. People don't naturally do that. They don't. And saints, you can't attest that it was hard for you to turn to Christ. You couldn't have turned to Christ in your natural state. It takes a deep, deep, powerful drawing by the Holy Spirit to change the stony heart to a heart of flesh. Yes. And ultimately, you don't choose God. God chooses us. If you disagree, read Romans 9. The fourth issue, and the last issue is, this might be the biggest issue or concern I have is, you think God desperately wants you. You think that Jesus is crying outside the door of your heart every night, wanting, wishing, and hoping for you to answer. You think Jesus is just that little boy. I have a, there's a dog at my house right now. And this dog always, or has been lately, just scratching at my door, wanting for me to open, hoping for me to open. Some people think that that's Jesus. He's that little Yorkie that just wants to come in, that wants to be so desperately in your lives. That's what I thought. But this is the sissified Jesus. Saints, if you haven't heard and if you don't know by now, God don't need us. You should get that tattooed on you. God does not need us. God did not need to create us because he was lonely. He's self-sufficient. He don't need anything. You're not the apple of God's eye. It's not about you. We need God to rescue us from God. That's why God saves people. To rescue you from him. If you have ears to hear this morning, please listen to this young man. And and if you fit into that criteria, I pray that you cry out to God for forgiveness and plead for his grace and his mercy to be poured out into your life. 
while there is still life, there is, there is still hope. God can draw people on their dying deathbed. To those who are of the faith, strive continuously for the renewing of your mind, the mortification of your sin, and for the joy in Christ alone. Let's end with these verses. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we may not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean when he says, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. What does he mean by that? You see how Jesus now has them wrapped around his little finger. Everything he's saying, they're just holding on to it. What does he mean by that? Wait a minute, what? 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 Let me answer the question for you, Jews. He means he's returning to the glory that he once had before the foundation of the world. He means he's going to the place where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, nor pain, for the older things have passed away. He means he's going to the place where he will sit at the right hand of the Father and his enemies will be made a footstool under his feet. He means he is going to the place where he will sit at the right hand of God and intercede for God's elect. Jews, he means he's going home. You see, what you don't understand, Jews, is... While you are plotting to take Jesus' life and you are plotting different things on how to kill this man, Jesus is waiting to give it as a ransom for his people. This is who Jesus is. And this is where Jesus is going. After the cross. When it's all said and done, there will be a throne awaiting. And after the thorns, there will be a crown that will be placed upon the king's head. You will not take this man's life. He will give it. But the beautiful thing about it is Jesus will not be alone. Where he is going, he's bringing people with him. You cannot go, Jews. But there are a people that's been reserved for me to go. These are the people who who Jesus has loved before the foundation of the world. These are the people who Jesus has loved before time and space. Before God separated the light from the darkness and separated the waters. Before he called dry ground land and the waters sea. Before the earth was expanded, God chose a particular people for the purpose of enjoying him and glorifying him in his kingdom. You can't go, Jews. But people, there will be people that will come. 
and they will reign with me. Or they will not need a son. For my glory will be all that they need. And they will see me. Not as you see me. But they will see me in all of my glory. For they will be glorified as well. Where Jesus is going, RBC, is the same place we are going. Saints, do you long for that day when he will be home? Do you delight in the future and ponder on the unseen? Saints, we will see God in all his glory. We will look up and the sky will be as clear as day. We will look down and we will see the pavement of sapphire. We will see the Lord with all of the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. We will see the exalted one and we will see the train of his robe that fills the entire temple. We will see his clothing, which will be white as snow and his hair on his head like pure wool. And my God, we will see the throne. The throne that will be ablaze with flames and its wills will be burning like fire. We will see the lightning and we will hear the pearls of thunder. We will see the four living creatures who has eyes in the front of their head and in the back of their head and all day and all night. Holy, holy, holy. And when we look up, we will see the rainbow. And we will see God. And his appearance will be brighter and more beautiful than an emerald. Saints. And at that moment, God will not be our best friend. God will not be our lover. But God will be God. And we will have no choice but to bow before him and repent into dust and to ashes. This is the God I present to you this morning. God who is God. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning. Let us examine our lives in light of what we just learned. Who is Jesus to us? Is he merely our best friend or is he more than that? Do we see him as God? Or just someone who taught some good things but isn't worthy of following? Maybe you are like the Jewish crowds who are just moved by the miracles of Jesus but not the words of Jesus. And maybe you are on the fence right now juggling if I should really follow Christ or or should I not? Let's ask ourselves that question this morning. May we stand. And if you've come to that conclusion, 
that Jesus is God in the flesh, who's come as a ransom for many, then I encourage you to celebrate this morning, to celebrate that wonderful truth at the Lord's Supper as we look back to the covenant that was made in eternity past between the Godhead, the Father giving the Son a people and a mission. The Son completes the mission of redemption and the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to all those who will believe. You are those people that the Holy Spirit applied that to. Let us remember this morning, Jesus was waiting to give his life And in six months from John chapter 7, the spotless lamb will be sacrificed to satisfy the wrath of God. Let us remember the blood that was shed as we drink of the cup and the skin that was ripped off the body as we partake of the bread. And let us celebrate the victory Jesus had over sin in the grave as he accomplished the redemption on the behalf of his people. And last but not least, let us look forward to the return of our Lord when all things will be made new. And that very place Jesus said the Jews cannot come will be the place that we will be as the bride of Christ as we partake in our wedding supper with the Lamb. Let's honor God this morning.